Theresa May was UK Prime Minister for just three years and resigned in 2019 after failing three times to get a Brexit deal through a parliament that had been hung since she called the snap election in 2017 and lost her majority. Before becoming Prime Minister, she was Home Secretary. She's written a book called The Abuse of Power, examining events such as Hillsborough and the Grenfell Towers disasters. She's still MP for Maidenhead, as she has been since 1997. I asked Theresa May if the book is a bid to be remembered for something other than failing to get a Brexit deal. I wrote the book because I wanted to expose this thread of uh, abuse of power that I've seen through so many issues that I dealt with both as Home Secretary and then as Prime Minister. Uh, And indeed, I I recognise the Brexit issue because people often ask me, when I go to schools, for example, in my constituency, they say sometimes, what what do you want to be remembered for? And I I will often say either the Modern Slavery Act or putting... uh, net zero emissions by 2050 into legislation. Um, But I recognise that actually what everybody will look at is Brexit. But Brexit didn't drive this book. What drove this book were the social injustices that I had seen, that I had dealt with, and this thread that I saw through those, which was the way in which people in power could use their power, not in the interests of the powerless, not in the interests of victims and survivors, but all, but in their own interests or their institutions' interests. And indeed, you cite Brexit as an abuse of power with people acting in their own interests rather than for the greater good. Didn't they think they were acting for the greater good? If you look at what happened in the referendum uh, in the UK, it was 52% um, in favour of leaving the EU, 48% against. So it was very close. And that's why I always thought it was important to be able to deliver Brexit. That's what people had voted for by a majority, but deliver it in a way that recognised the concerns of those who'd voted to remain. With a very close vote, I thought that was important. Sadly, what we saw in the House of Commons was those who were perhaps on the more extreme side of Brexit or the more extreme side of Remain, um, using their power in the House of Commons to stop that compromise from being put forward and, and, and being accepted. Uh, and that's why I say what they were doing was not in the greater good. The greater good lay in that uh, attempt at compromise, um, but they wanted an absolute position uh, for themselves. It's possible that they might have been right in their assessment that the people of Britain, either side, would not have accepted a compromise. I think if you look at, certainly at what people are saying now, if you look at some of the impacts that we've seen from Brexit, I think actually people did want to compromise. I think they wanted to make sure that we left, which we uh, were always going to do. I was very clear we should do that. But you had Remainers trying to uh, get a second referendum, uh, on the extreme end of Remain, trying to get a second referendum, uh, which would not have delivered the democratic will of the people. And then on the other side, people wanting uh, a very hard Brexit, in some cases a no-deal Brexit, which would have made uh, had a greater impact on our economy and therefore had a greater impact on the country all round. 
There has been criticism that you prevaricated about your position on Brexit in order to get the prime ministerial job. You voted in the referendum to remain. But before that, as Home Secretary, you had suggested that Britain should leave the European Court of Human Rights. You criticised the European Convention on Human Rights. There was not a wholehearted endorsement by you of remaining in Europe. Well, first of all, these are actually two separate issues. Um, the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights are completely separate from membership of the European Union. Um, so in, in relation to the EU, uh, I did say I did a speech right at the beginning of the referendum where I set out the reasons why I was supporting Remain. But I did say that the, the sky won't fall in if the opposite result comes from the vote. I did campaign to remain during the uh, during the referendum. Um, the issue that, uh, of course, people associated with me of immigration uh, was one which the Remain campaign were not uh, really campaigning on. They were campaigning on the economic impacts of the, the potential leaving of the EU. The European Court and European Convention on Human Rights were completely separate. You're right. I did look at our position in relation to the ECHR. Um, but I decided not to take action on that. Uh, and I think that was that was the right decision to uh, to make. You don't think that you were stoking people's suspicion of Europe in general by criticising those institutions? No, I think I think a lot of people do uh, connect the EU with the European Court. As did a lot of Britons, did they not? Well, uh, quite a few Britons probably do because it, they both had Europe in the name, um, but uh, I think that it was important to look at them as separate issues, which is what exactly what I did. Um, the reason for looking at the European Co Convention on Human Rights was because we'd had a particular case where I was trying to deport uh, somebody from the UK and the initial deportation had been prevented by a ruling of the European Court on Human Rights. We, we achieved the deportation in the end, by actually having a, a, a new legal agreement with the country to which I was deporting that individual. And so we, we got the result. By patient hard work, we got the result that we wanted. Are you... I mean, it seems odd to me that you would want to be Prime Minister, given that you were in favour of remaining, that you would want to be the Prime Minister tasked with taking Britain out of Europe. Well, there's a very simple answer to that, which is, I believe, in uh, following the democratic will of the people. Uh, and it had always been my concern that we had seen around the debate uh, of Europe other examples uh, where the European Union had changed treaties. Uh, there'd been referendums in other countries to uh, see whether people supported those changes. And in one or two occasions, uh, people had voted against what their government had done. And the government basically came back and said, no, we'll have another referendum because that wasn't the right result. I always thought that was wrong. If people have been given the opportunity to give their voice and uh, then their voice should be heard. And that is why I passionately believed in delivering, despite having voted Remain, despite having campaigned for Remain. I believe that the democratic will of the people should be delivered. You mentioned your position on immigration and Indeed, I, I, I'm sure you're right that that a lot of Brexit feeling was fueled by 
people's desire to cut down on immigration. You've been described when you were Home Secretary of being nearly obsessed with immigration. In fact, in 2010, you promised to bring down net immigration to fewer than 100,000 people, which I don't think it ever got close to that. Um, Then there were the advertising hoardings in London boroughs, go home or face arrest. You created a hostile environment for illegal immigration, and you're quite frank about that. Then we got Windrush, for which you take no responsibility at all. I do uh, make the point. I apologise for Windrush in uh, in the book. But if you look at what happened on Windrush, the reason there was a difficulty for some people who were legally in the United Kingdom was because when they had migrated to the United Kingdom, they were not given any documentary evidence that they had the right to be in the UK. Over the years, this happened under successive governments, over the years, immigration law became more complicated um, uh, and it changed people's rights uh, in certain areas. And that's why people then found when more checks were being introduced that they were in a difficult position because governments previously had not given them that documentary evidence. The problems that have become known as as, uh, Windrush uh, actually had been occurring under governments of different political colours, different political parties. Uh, So it wasn't an issue that was simply uh, uh, created in the uh, time in which I was Home Secretary. Um, It was important that we then held a review, looked at how the Home Office had approached this, Uh, And uh, that review came up with a number of recommendations, which, and I hope the government will accept all of of those recommendations. But seriously, as Home Secretary, you had no idea about the problems facing the Windrush generation until Sir Lenny Henry talked about it in 2018. Well, what uh, Sir Lenny Henry talked about were the specifics, was a very specific issue of the way the matter was being treated. The issue of Windrush had come, came up when I was uh, uh, Prime Minister. Uh, so when I was Home Secretary, when we were debating changes to the rules to ensure that those who had no right to be in the UK, those who were there illegally, were being treated differently to people who were there legally, who had a right to be in the UK, uh, this issue of a generation of people without the documentary evidence was not highlighted, was not brought forward. Um, But it then gradually became clearer when people who were in that position found themselves in some difficulty with the authorities that that, if you like, crystallised what the issue was. And it was when I was prime minister that Lenny Henry made those remarks. But these people were being detained and they were being deported and they'd lost their jobs. I mean, did you not know about that? No, that the, the the question as to why somebody was in that position was not something that had been that had been raised. Uh, it was not something that had when we were putting these new rules in place, the debates in the House of Commons didn't focus on this as an issue. I think this was one of the the problems. One, the review of the Home Office and Windrush was held. Um, the one of the things the reviewer 
commented on was was a sort of almost sort of inability of uh, people dealing with this to recognise the problem that had occurred because of initial an initial decision taken many years beforehand. And that's why I say this was something that, if you like, was a problem that was becoming an increasing problem as the immigration rules were changing. But it was only in that period uh, when, uh, uh, particularly, as I say, it came to a highlight when I was prime minister, that we found a significant number of people who were being affected. People had been affected previously. People had been detained or um, uh, had difficulties under previous governments. And yet the inquiry said that the disaster that was visited upon the Windrush generation was foreseeable and avoidable. Whose job was it to foresee it and avoid it? Well, over the years, it was the job of all those involved in the Home Office to, um, if you like, to to try to avoid problems like this. But they weren't but being detained. They weren't being detained and deported and losing their jobs over the years. Yes, they. No, I'm sorry. It it is not the case that this only occurred uh, under uh, the government of which I was a member. Those problems had occurred previously. To what extent? I'm afraid I don't have the exact numbers for you. No. But there had been those who had uh, had that, uh, that suffered those problems under previous governments. Then, obviously, there were a number under the government of which I was a member. Let's remember what, as I say, there were two fundamental issues here. The first was a desire by governments, and this had happened over the years, uh, the laws in relation to this have been strengthened over the years to deal with illegal immigration, people who had no right to be in the UK. Alongside that, there was a group of people who, when they came to the United Kingdom, in um, predominantly in the 1950s, uh, did n- were not given documentary evidence of their legal right to be in the UK. Those two things gradually, those the, the problems that that uh, brought about, built up over the years and came to, if you like, came to a head in terms of of, uh, uh, identifying the problem. It had been there previously. It was identified uh, under the government of which I was a member. But you don't believe that your deliberate creation of a hostile environment for illegal immigration and targeting illegal immigration led to a hostile environment for everybody. That wasn't white, basically. No, it absolutely, I absolutely reject that. What it did, what we were doing, was doing what previous uh, Labour governments had done, uh, what uh, uh, previous governments had done in saying, actually, there are, the, there are people who come legally to the United Kingdom, who have a right to be in the United Kingdom, and who are uh, normally given, obviously, documentary evidence of their right to be in the UK. There are some people who come illegally, to the United Kingdom, and we wanted to act. No, I do. I, I do. I illegally. do. I do. <laughs> well, sorry. Can I just make because there are some important points about illegal. Well, I understand the point. I, I understand think... the difference between legal and illegal. I'm suggesting to you that the British people, in the frenzy of the lead up to Brexit, were not discriminating against people who had a right to be there and people who did not. It was a hostile environment for everybody who looked like they'd come from somewhere else and needed to go back there. 
there is no doubt that there have been concerns in the United Kingdom over the number of people uh, migrating, coming into the United Kingdom. But a key concern has always been people who are coming here illegally. And those have been coming from many different parts of the world. Yes, I know. If you look at if you look at illegal immigration, there are a number of issues that are around illegal immigration. We see this in in uh, today, the government putting a significant attention onto illegal immigration. Um, some people will be come illegally into the United Kingdom because they are looking for an, an, an economic future that isn't possible for them in their country and they have no uh, means of coming legally. There will be other people who will be trafficked into the United Kingdom, criminal gangs bringing them into the United Kingdom. And there's another that's another aspect which I'm uh, focusing on in terms of that work on human trafficking in some work I'm doing globally to uh, establish a commission to look at those particular issues of slavery and trafficking. I'm talking to former Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, who's just written a book called The Abuse of Power, Confronting Injustice in Public Life. A lot of the abuses of power that you cite in, in, in your book you attribute to this kind of selfish individualism that has come about. I know that you are an admirer of Margaret Thatcher. Is there anything that you think she can be blamed for in that rise of selfish individualism that you deplore? Well, if I may say, what I highlight in the book is two things. The first is the defensiveness of institutions, the defensiveness of institutions of the state. If you look, for example, at what happened in the football uh, match that was the Hillsborough uh, Stadium tragedy, when in total 97 people lost their lives, um, what we now see uh, uh, happened, and that, that took place in 1989, it took over 20 years for the truth to come out. This is my point about the voice of the, the, the voiceless not being heard. People, the, the families of the victims uh, and survivors were shouting for justice for all that period of time. It then transpired that the police had changed witness statements. There were various other things that had been done. They changed witness statements. That was an abuse of the power of that institution to defend the institution. That is one of the fundamental themes running through my book. The other issue Let, is... Let's, let's, just, let's just pause there for a moment, because this took place under Margaret Thatcher's reign. Are you suggesting that her ethos led to a demonisation of the football fans at Hillsborough? No, it wasn't her ethos that led to that. There were, there were problems about, around football and football fans. Um, and everybody, there was a popular view, if you like, that had taken hold of the approach that fans took to football matches. And that was, and people wouldn't go beyond that in looking at what happened at Hillsborough. But if you look at other instances that I cite in my uh, book, I cite issues around abuse. Of, um, of staff by members of parliament. That's an abuse of power. That's an individual using their power. Um, so there are these two elements. There's the element of individuals 
using uh, their power in that way. And there's an element of institutions defending themselves. This is something we should all be worried about. When an institution or an organisation starts to get the, the you know, think in ways that it is more important than the people it is there to serve. Of course. That is the fundamental underlying my book. But but just to stay on Hillsborough for a moment, you commissioned a report. I mean, Hillsborough, how many inquiries, how many reports? And to this day, no one's been successfully prosecuted for what the second coroner's jury found was unlawful killing. But to quote from a report that you commissioned, the bishop said... This was in part due to the patronising disposition of unaccountable power. Did Margaret Thatcher have nothing to do with that? No, well, the the patronising disposition of unaccountable power, if you like, is what my book is about. The abuse of power that takes takes place. I understand. Uh, But isn't it also about (laughs) the ease with which people like the football fans in Hillsborough the children who were being abused by the sex ring, the people who did not have a voice when Grenfell Tower was going to burst into flames. Isn't all that to do with some kind of idea that if people aren't doing very well, they don't deserve to? And that's straight out of Margaret Thatcher's ethos, isn't it? No, it isn't. Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, part of uh, her ethos. But what does lie behind this, and in certain circumstances, is a sense in certain areas. Uh, if you take look at what happened at Rotherham, for example, in the Rotherham Council area, um, the report showed something like 1,400 children having been abused, and the authorities effectively having done nothing about this, despite cases having been raised with them. Uh, and the, there was, I think, in that case, a sense from that council, which was a Labour-run council, that there was, um, in some sense, a a, a sort of second-class citizens, that these were girls from the sorts of families where that's the sort of thing that happened to them. This is appalling to treat people in that way. Uh, And uh, those are the issues that I'm highlighting. And the purpose of highlighting them, of drawing out the threads, of drawing out the similarities is if we don't do that, then we won't learn for the future. Indeed. We and need it, to learn for the future. I take that point, and it makes very interesting reading, but I, but I still want to know whether you believe that the idea of individualism and self-actualization was responsible for the authorities and politicians and governments not taking any notice of the people who did not have power or money. I don't think it was individualism that, um, that, that led to this attitude of institutions. That's why I draw two, a, a distinction between these two elements. If you look at an individual who is abusing somebody else, who is exercising their power to abuse somebody else, and as I say, I have a whole chapter on some of the things that have happened here in the UK Parliament, sadly, and some of the, the um, uh, cases that have been seen. That is different from the situation where you have uh, an institution, be it a local authority um, or another part of the state, collectively uh, having a view, if you like, that almost um, not 
sitting down and saying, right, this is our view, but it somehow becomes the group think in the institution uh, that they are there to defend the institution rather than to absolutely serve the people that, uh, that they're there to serve. For example, sometimes in the health service where um, something has gone wrong, perhaps some, in, in somebody's treatment, and often my constituents will say, we, want, we, we wanted an apology. We wanted somebody to accept a mistake had taken place. And all too often, um, if you like, the doors are shut and, and the institution defends itself. It's getting at that we, that, uh, that I'm doing in this book. These are cases of the abuse of power, which all too often has arisen from that desire from an institution to defend itself rather than rather than think of the interests of the people it's there to serve. Just speaking of the health system for the moment, I haven't got the figure in front of me, but you cited an extraordinary figure that the NHS had paid out to people in a relatively short space of time billions and billions of pounds in damages. Can you remember that figure? Uh, Yes, I think it was over a period of a number of uh, three to five years, it was 12 billion. That's extraordinary. And so they're not, they're not apologising, they're just saying, here, take the money. They're not, no, it's not, uh, it's not quite as simple as that. Um, but I think what I've seen in individual cases in my constituency is often what people want at a very early stage is an apology, is an acceptance that something has gone wrong. And to be able to sit down with somebody and, be, you know, and, and for them to explain what they will do in future to make sure that nobody else uh, has the same problem, suffers from the same problem. Um, but all too often, the desire of the institution, if you like, is not to admit a mistake. Uh, and that then leads to litigation. And that then can then lead to significant sums of money being spent. That that figure is not all uh, compensation that's been paid out. Some of that will be the cost of the legal processes. Um, it's interesting that in two of the cases that you discuss in your book, Hillsborough and Rotherham, the South Yorkshire police were right in the middle of it. They were the ones who doctored the evidence in Hillsborough and they were the ones who ignored the Rotherham abuse for a long, long time. Is there something extraordinarily dysfunctional? I mean, it seems apparent there is about South Yorkshire police, yeah? Well, I mean, I think what we're looking at, obviously, is cases that have happened a number of years ago, obviously, the tragedy at Hillsborough was in 1989. Um, in, in Rotherham, we were looking at the um, early 2000s. Um, so I don't think you can talk about South Yorkshire Police today in the same way as you can talk about South Yorkshire Police as uh, we look at uh, those particular issues. Was well, something um, done to change it? Various steps have been taken over over time to look at um, these uh, that... Uh, Police force. When I was Home Secretary, I remember sitting down with the Chief Constable talking about the uh, the way in which they were going to respond to the revelations about what had happened in uh, in Rotherham. This is why it's important that we look at these issues, that we look at these cases, so that we can learn from them. You uh, talk about the inquiry that you launched into uh, child sexual abuse, particularly in in state institutions. Um, and we have a <laughs> we have a certain interest in this because uh, the first chair went 
and the second chair went and the third chair um, of a whole new inquiry that you announced was the New Zealand judge, Dame Law Goddard, and she resigned very soon after amid a degree of criticism. Finally, you got Professor Alexis J. Ex-Rotherham inquiry, right? Um, and the findings of that inquiry into child sexual abuse were extraordinary. What interested me about your response to it in the book is that you were so surprised by the findings that abuse had been rife in the church, whether it be Anglican or Roman Catholic. Why were you so surprised? Well, I think maybe I'm... A child of the vicarage. I, well, I'm a child of the vicarage. I'm, 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 I, was, I was surprised. I said that I thought when the inquiry finally reported, and they did a number of interim reports as well, that uh, the public and everybody would be shocked by the extent of the abuse. I think it is true to say that there have always been individual odd stories or rumours of abuse that take place. But it was the extent of the abuse that I think was what was shocking. Um, And the point I make in the book is that I suppose it is because of my background that it's particularly shocking that those in the church who are in that position of authority, who are trusted, in whom people have confidence, and who are... um, Due to lead their lives according to a certain, uh, you know, a certain ethos and a certain set of of, uh, of Christian values, and uh, but it's not just in Christianity, of course. It happened in a number of religions, a number of faiths um, it, that that this was happening. But you, I suppose, there's a, um, a an image of people of faith as people who are less likely to act in a in a bad uh, in a bad way. With all due respect, these findings from the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse came out in what? March 2020? And you you had no idea that child sexual abuse was absolutely rampant in the Roman Catholic and indeed Anglican Church? Sorry, I, I don't say in the book that I had no idea. You were shocked and surprised, is what you say. You were shocked and surprised, is what you say in the book. Yes, because of the, uh, I was shocked and surprised at the extent of abuse across institutions, across different organisations, and I draw, uh, if you like, a slight distinction from the church for the churches and other religions, other faiths, in that because they are organisations of people of faith, one would have expected much better of them. Uh, that is the point that I'm making. I understand. It just seems naive. Well, I don't think uh, it's not naivety to say that one is. I mean, by by your definition, if everybody should have known the extent of this, then something should have been done about it earlier. Uh, Yes. Yes. It wasn't (laughs) because people didn't understand the extent to which this problem was taking place. And it was only because I set up an inquiry to look into it that we now know the extent. I'm talking to former UK Prime Minister Theresa May. Do you think 
that if you had not called that snap election 2017, before which, I mean, when you became prime minister, you were incredibly popular. You called the snap election because why? It was a, a number of reasons. I mean, one of the key reasons was looking at the timing of elections and the timing of, of Brexit uh, would have made it very difficult in relation to the next election. I'd also hoped that I would be able to get, obviously it's proved to be wrong, but I'd hoped that I would be able to get a slightly larger majority, which would have made managing the House of Commons easier. In the event, I came out without that majority and therefore it made it harder. I wonder why, I mean, one can understand why you thought that, because you had, you know, 87% of the Tory voters back to you and 54% of the whole electorate um, in 2016 gave you their support in polls. But why did that not give you more seats in 2017? What happened? I think there were there were a number of issues. There was a particular policy issue that I'd announced on social care um, that I think did did have an impact. Oh, dementia the, was that the, what they call the dementia the dementia policy? That was that was not a phrase that I would use. No, 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 I know. But it was it was um, a policy in relation to social care. But I think overall, um, and, and what I'd hoped would happen in 2017 was what then happened. For Boris Johnson in 2019, which was that Labour voters saw that the Labour Party, Labour voters who'd voted to leave the EU, saw that the Labour Party was not going to deliver that um, uh, leaving the EU and would vote Conservative in order to, to get Brexit. That's what happened in 2019. In 2017, it wasn't quite clear to people, to those Labour voters, that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't deliver Brexit. By 2019, it was absolutely clear because Labour had acted in Parliament in a way to ensure that, that the uh, uh, deals to, to deliver Brexit were frustrated. In those years of you desperately trying to get some Brexit deal and, I don't know, you were trying to get all the balls into the holes and you'd no sooner get one in than another fell out, you know, it must have been a nightmare. Did it feel like a nightmare? Well, it was hard work. I mean, there was absolutely no doubt. And, and we were having to look at uh, managing the negotiations with the EU to get the best deal for, for the UK. Yeah. And then obviously, of course, managing the uh, the House of Commons. Um, so you know, an awful lot of effort was put in by a, a lot of people who um, were committed to trying to get the right deal and then get it through the House of Commons. So, yeah, it was uh, it was hard and it was uh, hard work. I mean, it is said that you spoke of your ambition to be prime minister from a very early age. I, I don't know if, if that's true or not. You can tell me now. Well, I, I don't recall this. One, one friend has said that I said this. I, I don't recall having said this, having said that. I did want to become an MP from a very early age. From about the age of 12 or 13, I decided I wanted to become a, a member of parliament. But... Finally, you got to be Prime Minister, and you must now be bitterly disappointed that it turned out the way it did. Are you? I feel hugely privileged that I had the opportunity to be Prime Minister, and I'm pleased that I was able to make some key changes. I've mentioned already, being you know, we were the first major 
economy in the world to put net zero emissions into legis- by 2050 into legislation. Climate change, hugely important issue to be dealing with. Uh, I'm pleased that, for example, the work I started on uh, mental health should progress into a new mental health act. The work I started on domestic abuse is now in a new domestic abuse act, helping the victims and survivors of uh, domestic abuse. I put the first 25-year environment plan through in the United Kingdom, set up an industrial strategy. Um, you know, taxes were lowered for people. Uh, we saw um, uh, we were able to, to uh, deal positively with uh, debt and the deficit. So there's there's a lot that I was able to do alongside Brexit. But as we said right at the beginning of this conversation, um, I recognise that for most people, the issue they will look at always in relation to my premiership is Brexit. You had, in terms of history, this is a, a, a tough way of saying it, but I can't, I can't find another way of doing it. In terms of history, you had the good fortune to be followed by two prime ministers that will be remembered for being terrible. Uh, I, I was, I've, uh, we're obviously on the third prime minister following, uh, following me uh, now. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously, my immediate successor had to deal with COVID, which was an incredibly difficult time for people around, around the world. Uh, New Zealand had a very tough regime in relation to uh, to COVID, in relation to uh, um, uh, you know people not being able to enter the uh, the country. Um, but it was that was a difficult period for all uh, countries to deal with. Well, it wasn't that difficult for Boris Johnson. He had quite a few parties to keep him occupied, didn't he? Well, that's uh, that's been looked at obviously by reviews and by the uh, by the House of Commons. Um, but I think it m- must have been very difficult for anybody in a position of power in government, certainly in the very early stages of COVID, when people didn't really know exactly about this, what impact it, you could see an impact it was having, but nobody really knew what the best way of dealing with it was. Um, there would have been information coming, you know, constantly changing and coming at them, and they were having to make these decisions. I think that must have been a very difficult time in government. Uh, across the world. You are still the MP for Maidenhead, as you have been since 1997, I think. Are you going to stay in politics or do you have a another life mapped out now? Well, I have been selected to fight for my, my seat again, but I am taking an interest in some other issues. I, I made a passing reference to one of the key issues that I'm dealing with uh, uh, earlier which is, uh, when I was Home Secretary, I put the Modern Slavery Act into place in the UK. And I've retained my interest in dealing with modern slavery and human trafficking. And in October, I will be launching a global commission on modern slavery and human trafficking. Uh, This will aim to give some greater political momentum internationally to the need to deal with this absolutely terrible injustice. Uh, And it will do a number of pieces of work. It will look at supporting governments to achieve their um, sustainable development 8.7 goals in relation to modern slavery. It will look at uh, businesses and their supply chains and the difference that they can make. It will provide a good research base for all of this. It will it will help governments by saying what is the legislation that is going to work uh, and uh, uh, in relation to dealing with slavery and trafficking. Uh, you know, the number of people in slavery across the world has been increasing. We need a real political momentum 
to deal with this. And that's what my global commission will be about. We are uh, certainly not immune to that in this country either. Um, We are at the moment constantly uh, disgusted, really, by what's happening. You say, if I recall in your book, that it's important to keep the issue of modern slavery separate from illegal immigration. Why do you why do you make that particular distinction? Because I think it is um, too easy to bring together people smuggling, and I referred to these different elements earlier, people smuggling and human trafficking. Um, slavery covers more than human trafficking, in fact. Human trafficking is when people are moved across, uh, moved from place A to place B for the purposes of slavery, and it's normally moving across a border. We normally use it when somebody's been moved from one country to another. Uh, modern slavery will be taking place, it, it takes place in the UK, would, I'm sure been taking place in New Zealand, in cities and towns, when perhaps people who are vulnerable are picked up and taken into what are effectively uh, working in slave conditions. Uh, so modern slavery is wider than all of this. And that's why it's important to make sure that uh, the, the issue of slavery and trafficking isn't simply seen as something that is about migration. Um, just finally, I need to ask you about Donald Trump. Why was he holding your hand in 2017? I, I think my answer to that is you really have to ask him. Um, he, uh, We were walking, we were about to go out to, uh, uh, in the White House to go outside to uh, uh, the press, see the press, um, and he said to me, there's a slope around the corner, so be careful when you're walking down the slope. It wasn't much of a slope, I have to say. Um, and uh, so I, okay, fine, thank you. Uh, and I walked around the corner and suddenly he took my hand. Um, and uh, so I don't know whether he was trying to help me or whether he wanted me to help him. Perhaps he just wanted to hold your hand. Maybe. <laughs> you uh, don't say, uh, maybe. What a gentleman. <laughs> what a gentleman that man is. Well, I, I, I do say, you know, the, the best interpretation is that he was being a gentleman. Um, on the other hand, maybe he just needed help going down the slope. <laughs> um, it's been excellent to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for the book. Interesting reading. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was former UK Prime Minister Theresa May. The book's called The Abuse of Power, Confronting Injustice in Public Life.